0: Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Thank you for tuning in to Tuesdays with Andrea podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan. And this is season three, where I like to speak with inspiring guests who um, are sharing their light, their insight and their knowledge to strengthen our community and uplift humanity. Today, I am welcoming Judge Bianca Camargo. She is recently appointed by the Illinois Supreme Court to fill a circuit judge vacancy in Kane County. She's one of five women to serve as a circuit judge in Kane County and the first Latina circuit judge in the history of Kane County. She's also worked as a prosecutor for the Kane County State's Attorney's Office, and a graduate of Northern Illinois University College of Law, where she also received her undergrad. She now lives in Aurora with her husband, Armando, and their four-year-old son. Welcome. Thank Ken. you very much for having me. Thank I appreciate you. the opportunity. Likewise. And uh, the reason why this is important to me to have this interview with you is because judges wield an enormous amount of power. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that judicial elections are often overlooked, especially in presidential election years. And I think that voters have real power, but we don't often know the enormity of power that we, that we have. Uh and any given year, there's up to 60 plus judges that are elected in Cook County, for example, in King County, we have a large judicial system and some of these judges are elected, some of them are appointed. Um, so I'd like to better understand from you uh, how The judgeship works, who gets on the bench, what you do, and just get more of an understanding there because um, I think that the judge position is a bit mysterious to the public. And so I'd like to open that up and offer more transparency as well as to get to know who you are as a person. What is it that... uh, formulates your drive and how did you get where you are? What does your background look like? And how could someone like me relate to you? And, and for the audience, what can they take away from your journey? What snippets or insights can be useful and practical as they're driving down the street or running um, and doing whatever they do as they listen and watch this podcast? Sure. So that's what we're going to talk about. So let's talk first about your history. Let's go all the way back. Were you born in Aurora? I
1: was born in Aurora and um when I was born we lived at the on the east side of Aurora so I lived on Pierce Street and that was uh, I lived there until I was about in 4th grade. I really enjoyed that neighborhood. Wait, Pierce Street? Uh-huh. Where is that at? It's um it so if you're on Broadway and you make a left on Pierce <laughs> it's by um so it's like Pierce and then the first intersection you would get to is Pierce and High Street. High Street? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, because I
0: grew up on Woodruff Street it's like a uh, a five block street in between high and Ohio that that so that's Pierce right there no. so Yes. Where? It has to be. I lived so, on Front Street, so. Isn't that crazy? Oh, also, guys, I want to point out that we have a production assistant, Janine Ariola. She's been helping me so much with the podcast. And so she is going to be the voice of God. <laughs> <laughs> you might hear her in the background. She is helping with uh, all of the logistical operations. <laughs> Would you like to say hi? No. Go <laughs>
1: Oh, that's funny. I think that that's one of the side streets off of Pierce, you know? And so think about the time frame there. I wasn't really aware of like the streets surrounding me. I just knew I lived on Pierce street, but we would follow, you know, when me and my sister, we went to Hermes elementary, which is off of jungles. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is we'd walk to school. So we'd, you know, I remember the path still clearly how we would get to school and, you know, Sometimes I I hate to admit that it happened more often than not. My parents had this like jar of um, coins and dollar bills. Sometimes we'd sneak a couple dollars and after school, when we were walking back, we'd stop by banana Split. Oh, yeah. And pick up a little code. And we,
0: I, I, knew, <laughs> I knew you were going to say
1: something. Dairy Delight. <laughs> I know. There's a huge argument in Aurora, whether it's Dairy Delight, Banana Split. Someone tried to throw Overwise in there, but oh, I was no. like, that, oh, that's no. North Aurora. Dairy like. Delight. I got you back.
0: Okay. If you want to come on here for an interview, I got you. Anytime. you're going to have to i We'll come together. Let's settle
1: the debate. Yeah. We'll have a, yeah, a taste test. The top Oh, I like that. That's a good idea.
0: A blind taste (laughs) test. But I think it's interesting. So we grew up all within the same Mm what? mile radius of each other yeah. uh, and then now you're a, a judge appointed by the Supreme Court of yeah. Illinois yeah
1: yeah yeah okay yeah. so yeah. and but it all started know, my roots started in East Aurora <laughs> so that's why okay
0: and you have so two
1: siblings I do I have an older sister and a younger brother okay yeah. so you're the middle I, I know the middle child the I, achiever well no, is that uh, the classical so one, achiever no, like
0: the one that gets blamed
1: for everything <laughs> You know, something breaks in the house. It was was you. Yeah. But I actually did break it. I was very mischievous when I was younger. I would break stuff and then I'd hide it. And my mom would find it like, you did this, right? And I'm like,
0: "Mm -mm." Uh -uh. she was like,
1: yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. I'm like, I did. (laughs) Very much um, got blamed for everything. But, you know, I was lucky. I had an older sister who, you know, went through, you know, high school. And I kind of followed in her footsteps, took her guidance. And then I was able to help my brother out get through the system and and make sure that he knew the right steps to take. So
0: and so what what did your parents do when you were growing up?
1: So um when we lived on the east side, my mom and dad, they owned a small business uh in Aurora. It was called Slim Image. It was like an exercise place. And my mom ran that and it was right on Farnsworth next to where the McDonald's is on close to the intersection of Indian Trail and Mm Farnsworth. And so we grew up there, me and my sister, you know, like the women would come in and work out on machines, right? So there's a, a workout place right now. And I can't think of the names but it's like you sit on a machine or you you're laying on a machine and it like lifts your legs for you.
0: Oh, the elliptical
1: stuff, like stuff. It wasn't an elliptical. It was like a, like a bed, but then you just put your legs there and the machine would lift your legs for you. So it would do all the work for you. But it was so funny because the women would be like, honey, can you press the button for me? And I'm like, yes, I can. You know, like I would hit the button and we'd play with the machines. Obviously my mom hated it. So they, my parents had that, but my dad, you know, he was a factory worker. He worked at Johnson Controls for a long time. And then I think there was a point in my parents' life where they were like, we we got to do something more here. You know, my dad, you know, decided okay. that factory work just wasn't going to give him what he needed and the opportunities that he needed to provide for his family. So he decided to look into uh, becoming a union electrician and so thankful to the unions for giving him that opportunity. So What I saw from my father is that he started, you know, he was still working as a factory worker. And then at night, he'd switch his lunchbox for his backpack and take some night classes at Wabansi to up his math skills so that he can get into the apprenticeship program at IBW Local 461, so the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. And they took a chance on him and they let him into the apprentice program. And he was there for 25 years. And I'm so thankful to the unions. I'm a proud recipient of the benefits that the unions gave my family. They gave us an opportunity. They gave my father opportunities that trickled down to us. They were able to put him in really good job sites where, you know, the unions are sitting there. They're taking care of the American worker and uh, like I said, that all trickled down to us. And mm-hmm. because he was given those opportunities, he was able to save for our college. But, you know, we moved from the east side to the west side and we got into different schools. And unfortunately, we also left the east side because it was becoming very violent in that area. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that was another factor that my dad considered is I need to provide for my children, but I also have to get them out of the violence. That area became very, very mm-hmm. violent. Yeah. And so we moved... To north aurora and i started in the west aurora school districts and so you know my dad's you know struggles and his sacrifices were benefits for me and my my siblings and same thing with my mother i mean my mother worked two jobs for as long as i can remember and you know there were times where she would leave the house at six o'clock in the morning and not come back till you know midnight and i didn't see my mom and i used to hate that I go, why can't you just be here why can't you be at my soccer games I later realized in life that she wasn't there because in order for me to play soccer and pay those fees and the uniform fees, she had to work an extra job. And, you know, again, those were things that I didn't feel. I didn't feel those sacrifices until I was much older. And I was like, I get it now. Mm -hmm. I get it now
0: that you were doing all of this for us. So did that help you in terms of education and staying on track with your studies? Because what drove you then to go to college and then law school. Was that always part of your original goal? No.
1: Uh uh-uh. uh. So, my parents instilled education in us from a very early age. And unfortunately, I didn't take advantage of that advice until my senior year of high school when I started thinking it's about to get real. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And so I didn't have parents who went to college who were able to, you know, guide me like, this is how you make the application. These are your, where you go to get letters of recommendation, like the people you would want to write letters, how to fill out FAFSA. I didn't have that, but I had something else. You know, I had three parents who had instilled hard work, dedication, and determination. And those values, I mean, I carry those to this day and they've served me so well So I was lucky, though, that I had them backing me. I just didn't have the resources to do it. And so I went, I remember I went to my guidance counselor when I was at West, and I said, you know, I see everybody's applying for college. I think it's time for me to apply. And she said, you know, college college isn't for you. You know, here are some trade books. Here are, you know, there's a factory. It was LTD. There was a lot of kids that were going to start, you know, doing factory work. And I decided that's not That's not my life. You're like, nope, the factory ain't for me. Not that I looked down on anybody who, you know, it it was just, I knew that I needed to do more. So, you know, I I know you've heard me kind of talk about the noise. I try to flush out the noise and the noise is people telling you, you can't, you won't, you shouldn't, you don't even dream that dream. I keep a little piece of that with me even now, and I'll never forget it because those are the people that also gave me drive. You know, my parents, they believed in me so much which gave me the courage to believe in myself and to fulfill my dreams, but those that little noise that I keep with me also drives me, the people that don't believe in me, the people that think I shouldn't be here or that I won't make it. They also give me the courage and, and the the push and the drive to do the things that I need to do. And I was lucky enough. I I got myself into Waubonsee and I did my two years there. And I, at that point, I was playing soccer for Waubonsee. And so when, if you were an, an athlete, you got hooked up with a different counselor. And I was very lucky to be with that counselor because she guided me and she was like, listen, if this is what you want to do, these are the classes you take. And she kept me on track. Mm. And I'm so thankful for her because, you know, you, it's easy to get sucked in with people that are misdirecting you. And then your two-year college stint turns into three and a half years or four years, which is a delay, you know? So I was lucky enough to transfer it to Northern and I'm very grateful for that experience as well. And, it was a good experience because I was going to school full time, but I also was working full time. Mm-hmm. And I was working at Home Depot at the time, and I really enjoyed that job because they gave me a lot of flexibility. They also gave me a lot of leeway, like, you know, go work at the cash register all the way at the end so I could, like, study as, at the same time. <laughs> 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 but these experiences that my parents instilled in me, this hard work, right? You want to you wanna get your college degree? It's not going to be easy. But you have to work for it. And if you can work for it, then it's going to happen. Mm. And so kind of going back to, did I think I was going to go to law school? Actually graduated with my undergrad degree, not knowing what the next step was going to be. What was your major? Sociology.
0: Sociology. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. What do you do with the sociology? You major got it. You got <laughs> it. So that,
1: that, that area of study gave me so much passion, like I loved it. I loved learning about how people interact, about Mm -hmm. institutional racism, all that stuff, just, oh, I loved it, I did well, because it interests me so much. But then what do you do with a degree like that, right? Mm -hmm. So I was lucky. Right as I graduated, they posted a position at the King County State's Attorney's Office to become a victim advocate. And I was lucky to get that position. How did you find the position? Just through a job board posting? Right. So when I graduated, I remember one of my professors, I can't even remember her name, but I, I can see her face. She was. She just cared so much about me. And she was like, Bianca, when you graduate, here are a list of companies that you should consider. And so the King County State's Attorney's Office they were on there. So I just Googled them and I saw that they had posted something on their website and I made the application and I got it.
0: So how do, when you see Kane County state's attorney, are you intimidated by the title? Because I'm thinking in terms of myself, I don't know if I would want to apply for the Kane County state's attorney's office. I don't know if I, if if the sociology major would cut it in terms of being considered. Sure. What is the self-talk for that? I wasn't scared because I wasn't sure what they did. To be quite
1: honest, I didn't know what the state's attorney's office really did. It wasn't until I became a victim advocate that I was like, "Oh, oh. I see." <laughs> you know, there's different type of lawyers. You know, they were prosecutors. They were prosecuting the cases that occurred in King County, and then you had your defense attorneys. But that wasn't all. You know, there was all these different types of attorneys that were involved. But it's funny, I wasn't afraid. I just saw a position there where I would be appointed to help victims of violent crimes get through the criminal justice system. And with sociology, there is a criminal justice aspect to it. Yeah. So I felt confident that I could do that. I knew the court process well enough that I thought and anything else that I did. And I felt I could learn along the way. Yeah. I was very fortunate to have that position because that position is what sparked the fire in me like, Oh, here's your purpose, Bianca. You know, being a victim advocate, I got to sit in court and watch trials, right? Because the victims of the crimes, they were, they wanted to be there and they have every right to be there. So we would watch trials, hearings, bond calls, all that type of stuff. And I got to sit with them and, and explain to them, you know, this is where we're at in the process. This is what's happening next. You know, if A happens, we'll probably go to B, but sometimes we have to go to C. So I was lucky, right, to get that experience. But in watching all those trial attorneys, that's when I really realized, here's your purpose, Bianca, you have to go to law school. It's great to have this voice, but you need a bigger voice. You need a bigger voice for your community.
0: Mm. And then you went to NIU for law school. Yeah. So going to law school was
1: also a scary thing, right? Because I was the first person in my family that had ever graduated with a bachelor's degree. And so now the thought of postgraduate, that's even harder, right? How do I get in there? What do I need? And so I was lucky, right? Because I'm like, who do I go to? I was working for the King County State's Attorney's Office, largest law firm in King County. There was plenty of people that I could ask. And so I, I confided in a supervisor and he looked at me like, why are you so worried about this? Just go. What did you you say to him? I told him, I said, listen, um, you know, I'm crying. If he were here today, he would tell you every time Bianca had a problem, she would come in, ask if she could close the door and then start crying. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are some things, you know, if you ask anybody to say one thing about me is that she's extremely passionate. And that's the thing is that I knew I was passionate about becoming a trial attorney. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a trial attorney. I wanted to argue in front of the jury. That was my goal. And, would look at me and he was like, you know, you want to go to law school? And I'm like, I
0: do. Was there a little bit of doubt? Yes. In in terms of your ability to achieve that or funding or connections? Absolutely. I wasn't so worried about the funding
1: because I thought I'll just take out student loans. You know, I was fortunate enough that my dad was able to pay for my undergrad degree. So I didn't have student loans at that time. And You know, that goes back to what I was telling you about not knowing the sacrifices growing up. If we were hurting for money, I didn't know it. My parents didn't let us feel that. And so I asked them recently, it wasn't until after I got appointed as a judge and I'm like, how did you pay for my school? Yeah. You know, how, how did you do it? He said, for you, because I saw what you were going to be. And I saw the potential in you. I started saving for you. (laughs) That meant that he didn't get the things that he wanted. That meant he drove his car five years longer than he should have so that he could keep putting away from my school. Those are the sacrifices that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You stop being selfish and you look for your kids, right? And you see the potential in them and what they can be. That's what I meant. You know, my parents made those sacrifices for all three of us. But going back to the law school thing, yeah, I felt like, (laughs) Cut this part out. (laughs) I did think to myself, am I smart enough to do this? You got yourself through undergrad. Maybe that was easy compared to law school. I mean, people would tell me it is going to be hard, but you can do it. And I thought to myself, you can do it. You have to rely on those three core values. Be dedicated, be determined, and work hard those three years, and you'll get yourself through there. And I did. And it wasn't without the support of my family and of the state's attorney's office. I relied on them. You know, in law school, you're talking about connection. It was hard. I was one of six out of 110 students that were Latino. The 110 students were split up in Section 1 and 2. And so, like, the, out of the six Latino students, I had two, and then there was the rest in the other section. Okay. So, you know, they connected with each other in their section, and I connected, tried to connect with the two that were in mine. But, you know, you'd walk into class, and everyone's like, you know, my my dad, you know, he's got his own law firm, or my aunt's a lawyer. So they had those people who could guide them, and I didn't have that. But, like I said, I had my my family
0: who just kept giving me the the courage and the support that i needed. Going back to when you had that conversation with the attorney, how did you know that that was the person that you could confide in? So i'm thinking about someone else who's in that same position. Maybe they're working in a position and they know they want to achieve and aspire higher, but they don't have the connections, they don't know who to talk to. What are some of those basic Qualities of that person that was in front of you that let you know I can trust this person, and only that but they're probably going to help propel me mm-hmm. so he was a person that, as a victim advocate when i was
1: i you know the victims of violent crimes, those are mostly you know your higher profile type cases, and I had worked with him on a number of cases before, and anytime I had a question, he was always there to answer it and so in answering those questions, I'm learning. I'm learning the process. I'm learning how you would apply the law to these types of facts and why this might go our way, might not go our way. So I had that connection with him. Mm-hmm. Spending that time gave me the confidence. Not being bothered by my questions. Yeah. Willing to help me gave me the the courage to ask him because I knew he would guide me. And he was also, he didn't mince words. He wasn't going to sit here and fluff you up if you did something wrong he gave you the cold, hard truth about things. And and that's, I felt if someone's gonna say or think that I don't have the potential to do this, he's gonna tell me, this isn't for you. Mm. You know, maybe consider something else. But no, he was like, go to law school then. Do it. Do it, you can do it. You know, and I walked out of there like, yeah, (laughs) I can do
0: this. (laughs) (laughs) And you did. I did. You applied, you took your LSAT, Mm -hmm. applied, got in. And then you're now part of an elite group of students taking elite classes. I mean, we're we're talking logic, reasoning, you have to understand the constitution, no laws. How do you prepare your mind to work and function at that level? That took a lot of dedication and to pull myself away from
1: the things that I used to enjoy, spending time with my friends you know, hanging out with my now husband, you know, three or four times a week turned into, I'll see you Saturday night for four hours, and that's it. We would talk on the phone on my way home from school, and then that was it. It was very condensed where I spent the majority of my time studying. And again, going back to that noise that still drives you, even though you hear it and you want to suppress it. You know, I had a pamphlet put in my mailbox in law school. Uh, and the pamphlet was completely dedicated to, and I don't, this is not what it was titled, but it was like, why minorities don't pass the bar exam and fail out of law school. And I'm sitting here reading the statistics and I, that put panic in me because I thought, wait a minute, we don't make it? We don't pass the bar exam on the first try? And that gave me even more motivation. Like Bianca, you're kicking it into overdrive. You need to kick it into over overdrive. So I spent a lot of time in the law library by myself. And I only made friends with like two or three people because I didn't have time for the social aspect of law school. I was so afraid of being the statistic
0: that I wanted to make sure I did everything I could that I wouldn't be that person. Mm. What were some of those reasons in the pamphlet of why Latinos don't pass the bar on their first, you know, try or uh, become a lawyer? What are some of those Stopping blocks. It was all about the resources
1: and the life experience, the prior life experiences and the support groups. Traditionally, there's not a lot of Latino lawyers. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of other minority lawyers out there. Even women were put in that. I mean, if you think about the structures of some of the best law firms that are functioning here, look at the top. Look at the people that traditionally hold those spots. It's not people that look like me. You know, and sometimes when you see things like that, you think this is where you start cutting out, right? This is where my dream's going to end because I can never attain that. And that, that was something that after I got appointed really started dissipating in my mind because I thought to myself, I never thought that I could be in this position. And here I am, which now I hope when people look in my community, look at me and say, she did it. I can do it too. There was a saying that I came across after I got appointed that said, if you can see it, you can be it. And if you don't see it, then you be it. And I thought, wow. And this applies to a lot of situations, a lot of people in our community that maybe don't see that they're represented in certain fields. Hey, man, if you don't see it, then you do it. Mm -hmm. You be the first. And then when you become that person, you pull your people with you the overarching policy is right, is qualified, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be qualified to do the job and not just pull people that look like you, because you, it's not just about diversifying. It's about including people. Yeah. Right. So people say, so you got the appointment because you're Mexican or cause you're Latina? No, I got appointed cause I was the most qualified person. There were other diverse candidates that the Supreme court was considering
0: And I was the one that they selected, the most qualified. Does that ever bother you? Kind of that association of, is it because I'm Latina? Or are we using the Latina plug too much in a way that diminishes the hard work and the qualifications that you bring? I think that if maybe that thought would creep in my
1: head if I was the only diverse candidate. But the fact that there were others made me feel like this wasn't just like a charity case where people try to make you feel that way. Like, "Mm, we'll just give it to the minority today. No. I mean, the Supreme court's not going to let that happen. They're not going to put someone who's not qualified to be sitting on a bench in King County. It's not going to happen because there's, we trust you, right? We trust that you are smart enough to find, if you don't know the answer, you're going to find it that you're hardworking enough that if there's a situation that you're not well-versed in, you're going to get yourself up to par you know, Mm -hmm. that you know how to run a courtroom, that you are ethical, that you have the integrity, that you have the skill set, that you listen. I mean, these are things that you can't just say, We'll just give it to any random person. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be such a heavy vetting process if we could just look at someone and say, well, she's Mexican, I'll give it to her. It it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And the
0: fact that you're able to achieve to this level And then now serve as a model of inclusion, as a model of um, aspiration is a great thing because it does open that door and it does show a new face to what your position can be, what it looks like. I think that's a great thing. What do your parents say now? So
1: my dad is so incredibly proud. I mean, anybody who's willing to listen, he will tell everybody about who his daughter (laughs) is. So, I mean, I, I, you know, and that's how my dad's always been, so proud of his children. My mother passed away in 2016. So she's not around to see, but I know she's watching. But my mother was the type of person that she would just tell you, if something great happened, I'm proud of you, right? And then she'd give you like, And I bought you these earrings. (laughs) But then, you know, after she passed away, I was looking through her phone and she had all these articles in the newspaper where I was mentioned when I was prosecuting cases. And that's how I knew that she was proud. Like I really knew she was proud of me. But like my mom, unfortunately, because of the way that she was raised, didn't show affection yeah. as much as I would like her have to. But those that meant
0: everything to me. Yeah. That's how I knew, you know, that she was proud of me by seeing those things. I heard you speaking at North Central College and with Judge Cruz. And there was a moment where you mentioned her words. I don't know if they were words of affirmation but she left you words of guidance Mm -hmm. and that's a way that she was able to kind of be with you Mm -hmm. and, and hence steer you when you were younger and that played at that voice that would drown out the noise Mm -hmm. of everyone around you. Right. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So when I was studying for the bar
1: exam, I was having a really hard time. I mean, it was probably one of the worst times That I went through academically because it got to a point where I felt like I couldn't even be left alone in the house because all I would do was just panic. You know, there's an enormous amount of pressure that comes along with being the first, right? So you're the first to graduate undergrad and to get your bachelor's degree and now you're getting a law degree. But what if I fail? You know, what if I don't pass? I mean, there's this pressure that I was putting on myself. No one else was telling me, if you fail, you're out of the family. right? <laughs> but it was me. Yeah. And so I remember talking to my mom and telling her, like, I'm having such a hard time. I don't know if I can do this. And she gave me a hug and she was, you know, kissed me on the head and said, you you got this. You're good, Bianca. Don't don't let this, you know, bring you down. El ánimo, like, give you the strength to do this. And then the next day, she came in and and uh, she just wrote me a card. She would. She's very notorious for not handing you the card directly. She would put it in the mailbox, not like she stamped it. But she just would put like Bianca Camargo and then in the mailbox, and then you'd grab it in from the mailbox, like when you brought in the mail. And I remember. So she would place it into the mail, yep. but it not get mailed. It would just. Right. Like she wouldn't <laughs> put a stamp on it or anything, just like, you know, when the mail was Why sitting she just there. even on the table. <laughs> uh, these are the little things that my mother would do, right? Yeah, that's like that's, her little stuff. That's step. cute though. That's like an extra yeah.
0: effort. Mm-hmm. I would appreciate yeah. that stuff. It was. It yeah. was just
1: like, I want you to be surprised that something came in the mail for you, you know? Aww. So I opened it and it was, it was just a card. And it, you know, it talked about, it was some, a religious aspect to it, but also like a strength aspect to it. And she just signed it, love mom. And I carried that card with me every single day from that time that I got it to the time that I took the bar exam. And I took it with me to Chicago when we were going to take the bar exam and I would read it on the days that I felt weak on the days where I felt I couldn't do this, I'd pull that card out and I would read it and read it and read it. And it gave me the strength to keep going. You know, and I still have that card with me. I still have it. And I pulled it out the other day after North Central, actually, and I read it again. And it just, is it anything special? It's special because my mother gave it to me. And because she believed what was written in there about me. Yeah. And that's why I keep it and those were the things that my mother did. You know, she showed love in a different way, but she loved us to death.
0: And there's a lot of people that can relate. There's people who who show love differently and they're not always the warm, affirming type. Right. And I remember that that story that you shared and how much it meant to you. I similarly value words. Mm-hmm. And to me, almost more than a gift or anything else, I keep word. I, I surround myself with yeah. words everywhere, just because they they mean something. Mm-hmm. But also, whoever the person who gives it is, is especially coming from your mom. Uh, I can imagine what kind of boost that gives you, uh, and you kind of need that in order to drown out everything else that's coming at you. Right. I thought that was very special, yes. very touching. So moving on, you are finished law school, you become a lawyer. And then you become a prosecuting lawyer. What was that time like? I really enjoyed being a prosecutor. You know, people have told me, you know,
1: being a prosecutor, that's gonna hurt you. I don't look at it that way. I look at it that in those 10 plus years, I was doing something for my community. Mm -hmm. I was making sure that our communities were safe. I was making sure that the people that needed help, that found themselves in the criminal justice system, got that help. You know, there was a situation one time, and I'll never forget this. It was a case where this individual was overdosing. And there's certain statutes that if you're overdosing and you call for help, you don't get charged, that type of thing. But he got charged. And I remember telling the defense attorney, if you get him the help that he needs, we'll dismiss the charges. He was like, well, you're going to dismiss the charges anyways, because you shouldn't have charged him. I get that but this was a situation where we're trying to help somebody so they don't overdose. They were overdosing when they called or when someone called on their behalf. This is the type of situation that I'm talking about where we were not just there to prosecute people and convict people. We were, I was lucky to work under leadership that looked at the bigger picture. There is someone who has found themselves in this position. What can we do to help them? If it's a situation where someone made a really silly mistake Can it be reduced down to a misdemeanor? Can we put them in a diversion program? If it's someone who has substance abuse issues, can we put them in a drug treatment program? Can we put, you know, someone who has mental health issues, can we put them in a program? That was like step one. Mm -hmm. Step two, if none of that applies, then what do we do? And this is a balancing, right? You know, you want to help your community if they're struggling, but you also want to help the victims of the crimes to get to a position where they feel like there has been justice that's been served. Mm -hmm. There are certain cases you can't do anything about, you know, like murder. There's not a diversion program for murder, obviously. But there is a situation where you would consider all aspects and then, you know, obviously considering the victims in those crimes and the victims' families in those crimes. But I found being a prosecutor to be extremely satisfying because I felt like every day I was working for my community and doing what's best for my community. And in that position, I spent so much time and I was happy to do it. I would work late, I'd come in on the weekends because I wanted to be the best. Mm -hmm. When I walked in that courtroom and we were doing a trial, I wanted the victim's family or the victims to see, I'm doing everything I can for you to make sure that you feel like justice was served in your case. And I didn't wanna let them down at all. there were cases where we had, you know, like sexual assault cases uh, where the children are victims. Like those were the cases you take the hardest, right? Because they're so innocent and these children have gone through something traumatic. And, you know, you want to make sure that you do right by them. But uh, that position gave me the values that I know are going to make me a good judge, Mm -hmm. you know, to follow the law, to be fair right? To listen Mm -hmm. and to be just, you know, give what's right in this situation. You know, I understand that maybe this person deserves to go to prison, but maybe there's something else going on that has never been addressed. You'd be surprised how many people have gone through the criminal justice system, people that have like substance abuse and their fourth go around and they've never had substance abuse treatment. Maybe it's time for that, you know? I think that what makes you such a well-rounded person and judge, right? Because you've had, whether you had the experiences or not, you've been around those who've had those certain experiences and you've tried to help the victims mm-hmm. of those experiences. So I feel like you can take that into account when you do your, your trials and, and you see both sides of the stories, whether you've experienced it or not. So I think that you're so well-rounded and able to make such good calls and have empathy when it, it's needed or, or mercy when it's needed to. I think that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a person who drowns out, you know, there would be times where defense attorneys would say, you know, they're charged with a felony. Is there any way we can get a reduction? And my big thing was send me a mitigation packet. Tell me why this person landed in this position. How did we get here? You know, are there issues that we need to address, you know, And I would read, you know, a lot of people would say, Oh, you don't even read the mitigation. Yeah, I do. I wanted to see those letters. I wanted to see their background, the unofficial background. Yeah, I know their criminal history. But what happened? How did we get here? And that was important to me.
0: And your appointment, your recent appointment by the Illinois Supreme Court, to your current circuit judge position, one of the phrases that they used was your courage to show mercy, when necessary. So not just being a prosecuting attorney or not just looking at the law flatly, right. but also being able to take case by case and understanding the individuals and the larger picture. And thankfully, like you said, you had good leadership to be able to show you what good looks like in that realm. right? But let's talk about that a little bit about how do you show mercy without bringing in personal bias, but still allowing the law to be applied fairly and equally to people.
1: So there have been certain situations where, um, you know, individuals, for example, say they got, they don't have a valid driver's license. So they get this driving while license suspended cases. I, as a prosecutor, I never understood the process. I would always just think to myself, why don't they just get their driver's license valid? Like do what you have to do and get it done. What I've learned as, you know, as a sitting judge now and I hearing more There are reinstatement fees, there are driving tests that need to be paid, there is proof of residency, those types of things that I've never really considered. And that's just a small list. Mm -hmm. The list is endless of things that people have to do to get their driver's license reinstated. Now, what I say when I see this type of charge, I always tell them, you can talk to the state right now and you can get an offer, which is going to be on a Class A misdemeanor that has certain ranges, the maximum being 364 days in the King County Jail and up to a $2,500 fine. That's the maximum. Or I will give you all the time that you need to get your driver's license reinstated. Because if they get their license reinstated, usually what the state does is they reduce those down to a petty offense. Mm -hmm. It's just fines only. So my position is I don't want you to get a Class A misdemeanor even if it, you get supervision on it, mm-hmm. but that's a misdemeanor yeah. versus traffic petty. I would rather see them in that situation. Mm-hmm. So I will, you know, it takes time. There's cases that I've seen that, you know, it started in 2019 and we just resolved them last week, mm-hmm. but I'm so proud of those people. Yeah. And I tell them really, really good job on getting your driver's license back. I'm proud of you because it's not easy. Mm-hmm. You know, as a prosecutor, I didn't understand the process. I was just like, why didn't you just get your driver's license? But now- I see that. And I can, you know, the mercy is not saying, well, we're setting it for trial. Right. Or you need to resolve this case now. Mm -hmm. I will give you the time that you need. Do we want to see 2019 cases on our docket in 2021, 2022? No. I also don't think that it's fair when they're making efforts to try to get their driver's license back. In addition, you know, it it is traffic court. So it's, uh, you know, a situation where people are either getting supervision or convictions and fines. You know, I will do everything that I can to work with individuals. You know, like I talked about at North Central, the pandemic is still affecting people. And when they're so backed up on their things that matter, your mortgage, your food, your other bills that have been neglected because you didn't have a job. When they come in and they tell me, I just started working. I need more time to pay my fines. Let's do it. Let's give you more time to do that. Because I don't want these people to get a conviction. Right. I know how detrimental that could be on their driver's license. And if they're the person that take the kids to school that do all the grocery shopping that, and they don't have their license, now we've affected a group of people.
0: And then it's not making our community safer. No. It's not going to no. help the community right. as, as a whole right. in that way. Right. It's great that you're able to look at it from that larger perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, another thing too, is I tell people just
1: work with me, you know, if you owe $356 and 50 cents, let's do a six month extension every month, send a $25 payment, a $50 payment, show me that you're making payments. And if you show me that at that six month period, if you're not done, we'll kick it out again, Mm -hmm. but little by little, we'll get it done.
0: We'll get it done. What about the Latino community or not even Latino, let's say underprivileged, let's say those with lower socioeconomic status or money, let's money. Mm -hmm. What does representation look like for them and how can the law be applied for them as equal and just? Do you see discrepancy? i see
1: discrepancy with the traffic cases because a lot of them when they're petty offenses are not eligible for the appointment of the public defender and then they don't have the money to hire their own why aren't they eligible because there's no possibility of jail time and so when it's a fine only they're not eligible for the public defender and so they either have to hire their own attorney or they have to negotiate on their own behalf yeah or they don't pay the fees and then they just keep accruing well the fees as long as they don't send them to the collection that amount will stay the same so that's why i don't want that to happen to people either where i say well you can take a conviction and we can send the fines to collections Uh Uh-uh. the interest rate on those collections is super high i don't want anybody to do that i don't is that
0: a normal process or is that something that you just do what? don't send the fees to collections. That's something that I don't offer in my courtroom. But other can other people
1: other judges do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't do it. Be, I don't give them that option cuz I don't want them to take right. that option. I don't think it's the best option. Yeah. Uh, the best option is to give you more time to pay the fines and costs. And again, you are going to be on supervision for those extended six months, but at least, you know, you did 12 months without getting into trouble. What's another six months, you know? Yeah. And, and as long as you can pay the fines off, no conviction will enter and it. We don't get to the collection part of it. So I don't offer it to people. Yeah. I know. I'm glad you don't. No, <laughs> well, because sometimes I think people don't understand. Well, I'll just take a conviction. Yeah. And then your fines are going to collections and three, $300 turns into a thousand dollars like that,
0: mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I know a lot of people, especially in college, you know, in college, you just park on the street Mm -hmm. or you like... And you rack up parking fines. Yep. So many people get caught up with fees, traffic fees, and then they accrue, 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 and all of a sudden you lose your license. You go to jail. You can't. And then you can't even bail out of jail yep. if you can't afford the fees. Yep. This is like cyclical. Yep. But see, that's how people get jammed up, right?
1: Yes. They don't pay their fines. They start collecting. I had a guy the other day tell me I owe six thousand dollars. And I looked at him, I'm like, how will you ever pay that off? Who has $6,000 to just send to the secretary of state? When that guy told me that, I was like, oh my God, I got so bummed. And I said, well, what you tell me, what do you want to do? You want time to pay that off? I'll give you the time. Or do you want to talk to the state about an offer? And he was like, "I want more time if you'll give it to me." And I was like, "I'll give you you're all just the time."
0: Working to just pay off the 6,000. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you could, you're not able to invest at that point. Right. You're not able to, you know, pay for your son's college. Yep. You're yes. paying off fines, right. fees. Yep. I think those little nuances make all the difference yep. of why good elected judges make a huge difference in the community. Right as a whole. Um, Let's talk about the Latino community and the way that you're able to serve and use your background as a Latina to help them specifically, because that is important. You do represent and are able to connect with them, whether it's speaking native language or helping them understand and interpret the law. Talk about that a little bit. So
1: I, with what I see with my Latino community is, you know, they come in and they're terrified mostly because they're there probably for the first time, but also they don't speak the language. And so what I like to do is we do have an interpreter in court and sometimes I have to use them, for example, like for bench trials, when there's other parties involved, obviously the other parties need to know what's being said, but when it's just one-on-one and we're going through a plea or we're looking for more time to complete some terms, I speak to them in Spanish and you can automatically see, you know, I call their names up and, you know, if it's like Camargo, I say, you know, Bianca Camargo, and they'll come up and they'll be like, "Uh," and they'll just look at me and I'm like, buenos dias, señor, como esta? You know, and and they are, you know, all, you can see it. It's, you can see that they relax and they're like, hablas español? Which kind of, I'm like, do I not look like I Spanish? (laughs) 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 But, but I say, oh, si, aquí para servirle. You know, like, and is my Spanish perfect? No but I will tell you that people appreciate that you're trying, you know, if they have questions that you'll try to answer them the best that you can. Mm-hmm. And so once they see that they kind of trust you, like, it's like, again, like you can see it in their body language, their shoulders go down. They are a little bit more relaxed. They start telling you what they need. Right. And I will tell you the majority of my Latino community are getting tickets for no driver's license, you know, and you'll see that, a lot of them are going through the process of becoming citizens. Some of them are right on the cusp of becoming a citizen or haven't even start that, started that process. And again, why do circuit judges who are diverse, why, do, why does it matter? Here, here it is. I understand that. I understand your realities. I personally haven't lived that reality, but I know my family members have. I have family members who are going through that process, who have been through that process. And so I know that takes time. You know, becoming a citizen that's not easy. Mm-hmm. And so do they need time to to get that process started to provide certain documents to the Secretary of State so they can get their license? Yes. Mm-hmm. Am I going to give you the time to do that? You better believe it. You know, and somebody might think, "Well, you're jamming up the court call." I'm not, because we are resolving so many so many cases daily, weekly. So the little cases that I'm I'm continuing for that purpose, we're still resolving so many other cases. So it balances out. Mm-hmm. I'm not jamming up the court calls. My court calls are not heavy. We're strategic about when we put them. There's a cap that I have, you know, over 180 cases. is not a number I'd like to see. I don't like to see 250 cases on the call because it it's a long morning for people. But things like that, you know, that's how I can connect with my community. That's how I can let them know, there's someone on the bench who understands you Mm -hmm. who hears you and connects
0: with you. And, and that's, that's huge. And it's not a small number. I think what it is, the 16th district has a much larger Latino community than before by roughly 30%. Yep. Yep. So growing number and it's a demographic that you're aptly prepared to serve Mm -hmm. and help just as much as everybody else. Right. And that's, I think the, the purpose. Mm-hmm. is just as much as you can serve everybody else, everybody just, just as proficiently. Mm-hmm. So because of COVID, and we stopped doing jury
1: trials, it got really quiet up here. And I started thinking to myself, is there some other type of law that I should be practicing? Should I branch out, you know, widen my, my tool set. Um, and just as I was thinking those things, um, an attorney from Casa Kane County came knocking on the door and was like, Hey, we're interested in you. If you're willing, we'd like to interview you. And, you know, it was a new area of law. And I was nervous, right? Because you're leaving something that you've known for the last 10 years. And I don't want to say you've mastered it because you've never mastered being a lawyer. Mm-hmm. If you ever think you mastered being a lawyer, you're dead wrong because it's ever evolving. And you are, you, it's up to you to stay on top of that stuff. But I felt comfortable there. Mm-hmm. If somebody said, here's a murder case you have to prosecute okay, let's get started, you know, and here are the stepping stones. Is there something new I need to learn? Let's learn it. But I felt just like I was leaving my home for the last 10 years, but I was also excited. Like this is a new area of law and, and I'm, I'm ready for it. And at my going away party, I was approached by someone and they said, there's going to be a vacancy in Subcircuit 1, which is a subcircuit you live in. And you need to apply for the judge position. And I just, me? Like, are you talking to, are you? Talk, is there someone standing behind me? Are you talking to someone else? Like, I just couldn't believe that they would think that I was qualified enough to do it. Again, this doubt. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? I- or in the last 15 years, I've shown them, the people that want me, that, this, that I am qualified for it. I've showed them that I'm hardworking, that I'm dedicated, that I'm not just there to seek convictions, that I'm there to listen and to learn and to listen to people. And they all saw those things. Mm-hmm. And with that, then, you know, they're the ones asking me, make the application.
0: Have you ever talked to the person who asked you? Mm-hmm. What did they say? Like, how were they just keeping their eye on you? Were they? Well, that's the thing, right? You You go into all these different courtrooms and you practice in front of
1: all these judges and you think, you know, they don't think that I'm good or, cause they can, they don't tell you and they're not going to sit there and be like, Bianca, you are amazing. Yeah. They don't say those things. They, they're they there to be fair and impartial. If they're telling the prosecutor she's amazing and the defense attorney's in there, like, what about me? You don't hear what the judges really think about you, yeah. you know? So you always wonder, do they think that I'm good at this? And, you know, obviously that was the answer. <laughs> and so then you, we're appointed. So then, you know, you put in the application and then some of the circuit judges that were already, you know, sitting circuits, got a few phone calls. Hey, we have questions about this. Tell us a little bit about this. What about this? They're vetting, so, you vetting you. Vetting me, point. vetting me hard me extremely What kind of hard. questions do they
0: ask you? You
1: know, um, what about a situation, you know, like what, what would happen if you did this, this, and this, what, what would your response be to that? Or, you know, what if somebody said that, you know, you're too, too much of a strict prosecutor and, you know, I would answer those questions and, and they, you know, seem satisfied with those answers. And after the application process, then we all interviewed with Supreme Court Justice, an Illinois Supreme Court Justice, and that was terrifying.
0: <laughs> All of them, just one, just one, because uh, there's what? How many of them are Seven. there? Seven. And then, do you know which one you're going to get?
1: I knew who I was interviewing with. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I went back. You know, I hadn't applied for a job really. I mean, I applied at Casa, but that was kind of a situation where we were just like it felt like. Maybe I'm wrong. That we we're just kind of going through the motions. They they knew that they wanted to hire me, mm-hmm. but this was different. I'm like, oh man, you gotta be on your AAAA game. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, you know, and it was, I was like, I sweat through my jacket. <laughs> But he was so nice. What did you eat for breakfast that morning? I didn't eat anything. Just like right now, I haven't eaten
0: anything <laughs> because I didn't want.
1: You know, I'm the type of person. Like when we were on trial, ask any trial I'm attorney. So honored. No. <laughs> you're on that same level. You know when you're on you when you ask any trial attorney when you're on trial you don't eat. You cannot afford to get I'm gonna sick. I'm going to feed
0: you after this, No, bro. do you know what I mean? Like, you're sitting there,
1: and you're like, oh my gosh, my stomach is rumbling. Like So you don't you know, eat? Oh, yeah. I mean, we did a murder trial one time. It was a murder and a solicitation. We were on trial for two weeks. I didn't eat for, I mean, I ate dinner, but, but I wasn't eating breakfast or lunch. You know, and, you know, you think you're just sitting there all day. You're not losing any, you're not burning anything. The amount of tension and stress that you have coursing through your body. I lost 15 pounds in those two weeks. Oh. I mean, it was great. I gained them all back within <laughs> a week. But, <laughs> I mean, to,
0: to just to kind of outline, like, how— wow. It speaks to the level of, like, physicality mm-hmm. also that your job requires. Yep. And even though you're just sitting there and, you know, reading or, or talking or standing sometimes, it does also take a toll and on the, the listening, body. Yeah. You know,
1: the, what is the witness saying? Anticipate the next question. You know, this is what I was telling one of the younger prosecutors. We just did a trial, and I said, listen— soon as that defense attorney stood up with that piece of paper with that police report, you you should have objected already. Well, why? Cause you knew what he was about to do. He was about to improperly impeach your witness. You have to think two steps ahead and that's hard. That takes a lot of concentration. You know, there's times where I would see defense attorneys and they'd be like, rap, rap, rap. and it's like, you have to try really hard to drown that out because you have to be listening. You have to be anticipating what the next question is going to be. And so that's like, mentally draining. Mm-hmm. And then physically you 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 sit up straight because people are watching you and, and you, you know, don't, don't slouch, don't be nasty. Don't, don't sit there with this demeanor that you don't want to be there, mm-hmm. you know, because they're watching you. The juries keep such a close eye on the attorneys. I did another murder trial with my, my mentor, my little supervisor that I asked him about law school. It was What's a note- his name.
0: Greg Sams, Greg Sams. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But he was one of many. I mean, I was so fortunate. I mean, Greg Sams, Kelly Orlin, and Vince Coyle, they were my go-to people.
0: What did they each do for you? Well, Greg Sams,
1: we know. mm -hmm. And then Kelly really took me under her wing. You know, she was the one that gave me some uh, experiences that other attorneys didn't have. You know, you want to go shooting with the police to to build a rapport with them? I'll set that up for you. You want to be on this solicitation of murder case with, you know, four— I think it was, we had 45 witnesses. I'll put you on with me. You know, and I was a misdemeanor ASA when she put me on to do this felony murder and solicitation case. And I was a third chair, so every trial has to have a first chair and a second chair. But I was a third chair. There were so many witnesses. But I was so proud to Wait, have what's the-, the
0: first chair, second chair, third chair. Oh, sorry.
1: Sorry. So the first chair is the person who's running the trial, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then your second chair is like your support team, right? And that's where my, uh, that's where Vince Coyle came in. He was my favorite second chair because we balanced each other out really well. I was very passionate. I would get very, you know, heated in my arguments. And Vince was very calm and cool. And so you needed that. Mm -hmm. When I would get hype, you know, outside the presence of the jury about things, he'd be like, why don't you go take a walk? It looks like you need a walk. And then Mm -hmm. we'll talk about this. You know, it's like he kept me grounded when I was like floating around and going crazy, you know? Those people really shaped my career and they kept me focused. And they were the people that I would say, I got this case coming up. This is the argument I want to make. What do you think? You know, and, and, you know, the one thing that Kelly Orlin has always taught me, your words are important. Your words have ramifications. Use your words wisely, you know, and, and that hits, right? Because when you're making arguments to the jury, your words matter. It's one thing to say it this way. And it's just like, "Mm, okay, it's another to like, say something with such an impact that people are like, Ooh, you know? And so, you know, those were just a few of the people that I had
0: in that office that really like looked out for me. And it's, it's great. I always think people need like three roles or three types of people to, to help them develop. Mm-hmm. One is the the coach, like that everyday person who can help kind of guide you. It mm-hmm. sounds like the second chair mm-hmm. was really that person yes. who balanced you out. He knew kind of where you were at, what you needed and how to compliment you. Yep. And then everybody needs a mentor, someone they aspire to be who's doing what they want to do. And maybe you're not at that level, but they can kind of guide you through that process. Um, And it sounds like that first um, attorney who you confided in about wanting to go Mm -hmm. to law school served that role similarly. And then a sponsor, Mm -hmm. someone who will speak your name when you're not in the room, who will open doors for you when you can't open doors or make those connections happen. And it seems like- those three people each played their roles yep. almost to perfection for yes. you. Uh, yes. Because without that, do you think you would be
1: in the same position? Probably not. But I was, I was lucky that they took an interest in me and I took an interest in them. Yes. You know what I mean? so Kelly to me was someone who there was not a lot of female supervisors and she was ahead head of the drug unit and still is a head of the drug unit. And that's a male dominated unit. You're working you're mostly with men, with police officers who she was able to connect with them and have a relationship with them where they trusted her. I mean, they trust her. They, they, they go to her for advice on cases. She's well-versed in search and seizure, Fourth Amendment law. Like, She's a superstar, right? And so people rely on her. And I see that, and I think to myself, again, I see it. There is a female supervisor in this office. Now we have others, mm-hmm. but when I was coming up as, as a younger ASA, she was the one. And then we also had um, the first chair who was the first chair in that office. So it was like the state's attorney, Joe McMahon, and then the first assistant was Jody Gleason, mm-hmm. who now is a judge in Kendall County. But I was able to see them, and they were strong, assertive, powerful women. And again, that's something that you see, and, and that's those are qualities that you want to Emulate because you also want to be a heavy hitter prosecutor. You want to be a heavy hitter trial attorney, you know? And then Greg was just always my person that, if I felt like I was gonna, you know, pass out, I, can I come in? And then I'd come close in, the close door. the door. Greg. <laughs> <laughs> when I told him I was leaving, I went into his office and I said, Greg, can I close the door? And he said, yes. The door, and he's like, "Please don't tell me you're quitting." I am, you know, and it was hard for me because, yes, I had been a prosecutor for ten plus years, but I had also been a victim advocate in that office, and he had been one of the people that was there from day one to the time that I left. So that was hard. Yeah, that was like a fifteen-year relationship that I've had. You guys with still him. keep in touch. Sometimes. Yeah, it's hard. You know, I will tell you being a judge, it's hard, right? Because you have to cut some of these relationships out because if they appear before you, you don't, you want to be fair and impartial. And so sometimes you have to cut certain relationships or keep them at a minimum or kind of surface level. There are certain people that I'd have to recuse myself, Vince and Kelly, and I just you know we are friends outside of work so those are probably people that I will not take cases from mm-hmm. which is a proper thing to do right being from aurora there's are there are a lot of people that I I know and many of them have come before me and I make the disclosure you know state I know this person from way back when I can recuse myself if you want me to um, but I want you to know that there's that relationship and usually it's just a plea. And so we just put it forward. It's already been negotiated. I'm not part of those pleas. The sentencing is set, you know, or the terms of the sentence are it's already set in stone and I'm
0: not involved in that. Mm-hmm. So. It's the disclosure that that is important in those situations yep, saying, I recognize there is a, a connection. It may sure. not be a relevant or a new connection or, or a meaningful one, but this is, this is the connection yep. and let's move on. Yep. Let's talk about your campaign now and where you want to take this and what you need from those who are listening or watching. What I need is the votes. That's the most important
1: thing. And I know that sounds so simple, but, you know, people have told me with COVID, you know, things are changing. Your March primary is now in June, at the end of June, when people are not worried about politics or I mean, getting ready s- for worried about vacation. Exactly, Fourth of, of July school. is that weekend, and so they have other things on their mind. So they're, you know, people We're are the. It's Fourth of July weekend is the voting. It's uh, June twenty eighth, June right before, yeah. right before. Yeah. Wow. So you know, people are saying it's going to be low voter turnout, and you have to worry about people not showing to the polls. But I think that there's a way that we have to look at that and 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 get people excited. You know. What, what would motivate someone to want to go vote, to stand in line, to take time out of their day to vote? And, you know, I know people think, well, the judiciary races, they don't matter. They do matter. They absolutely do matter. So yes, I was appointed unanimously by the Illinois Supreme Court for this position. Now we got to keep me here. We have to keep me here. And you think, well, why? Because I'm one, you know, if you look at those 14 circuit judges, I'm one of three that are Hispanic, but I'm only one of three women also. So if you pull that out, that's a small amount of people that is a true representation of our community. And then, you know, then people argue, well, you have your associate judges that are diverse. Okay, there is diversity and then there's inclusion. Do we have diverse judges on the King County Judiciary? Absolutely we do. Do we need more? Yes. Diversity is part one. Part two is the inclusion part of it. So diversity is being asked to come to the dance, right? Mm -hmm. I heard this analogy and I thought this is great. It's being asked to come to the dance. Being included is being asked to dance, okay? Mm -hmm. So now do we have numbers that represent our community? Yes. But do we have people that are in a position to change policy, to change procedure, to put other associate judges that look like a representation of the community on the bench? That's what we need. And that's what we have to keep by retaining the seat in this position as a circuit judge. I'll have the power to make policy and procedure with the other circuit judges, the right to vote. The I get a vote on who the next associate judges will be. When I'm considering an, a candidate, you know, if they're a diverse candidate, and other judges might not be, you know, convinced because maybe there was something in their upbringing that they don't understand, or some lull in their college uh, career. Maybe that I, you know, did they have to drop out because they had to help their family with finances Mm -hmm. and then they had to pick up again, things like that, that I can relate to those realities, that I can convince the other circuit judges, this is a qualified, because qualified always matters, a qualified candidate that we should really be considering for these reasons. So this is a situation where, you know, people think, It doesn't matter that, you know, you're a circuit judge or no one really cares about the judiciary races. You should care. Mm -hmm. You should care because you want a diverse and included judiciary. That's what you want. Because when you walk into a courtroom, you want to see people that look like you. Mm -hmm. You want to see people that understand your realities and connect with you. You know, in addition, you know, you get tried by a jury of your peers, right, Mm -hmm. if you have a jury trial. If you have a bench trial, which is only before a judge, don't you want diverse judges Mm -hmm. that are listening to your case? So it's not just a situation where, you know, people are like, well, no one really cares about the judges. Again, you should. The community should be involved in this. There are consequences, real consequences to not voting, to not exercising your right to vote. When, When you don't vote, bad things happen. And maybe people that are not qualified get in. That's the situation as, as a community that we don't want to look forward to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What are some of the pillars of your campaign? You know, that's one of the things that people ask me, you know, what, what is your thing? What are, you, what are you running on? I don't have a thing. I can't be, I a can't thing. tell you. I can't tell you when I have these types of cases before me, this is how I would rule. You don't want that. You want me to always be fair and impartial to listen to the facts of the case and to apply the law to the case. Every case is specific. It's unique. You don't want a situation where you're going to have a judge that, oh, if you put these facts in front of her, she's always going to rule this way. Yeah, You don't want that because it should always be a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. So that's what I can promise to my community that I'm always going to be fair and impartial, that I'm going to follow the law And that I'm going to listen. I hear you. I hear you. Cause that's what people want. Right. That's Mm. another thing too, that I really am working towards right now. We're in a bad state of affairs where people don't trust the criminal justice system. And it's not just police. It's trickling up. They don't trust anybody. And what I do in my courtroom every single day is I tell them my closing line always is the most important thing to me in this courtroom is that you're treated fairly and with respect. And not just me, you don't just treat me that way. You treat everybody in this courtroom that same way. But to that end, this is your day in court, okay? You have questions? Ask. You have, when you walk out of that door, I want you to know everything that you are supposed to do. You. I want you to know the ramifications of your plea. I want you to know the rights that you're waiving. All of these things are important to me that you understand how many times in the course of my appointment, you know, people pled out in in August are now back to see if they fulfilled their sentence. And they say, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. The first time I heard that I thought, Bianca, you need to change your opening remarks. You need to start telling people don't leave this courtroom without knowing what you're doing. This is important. And if you don't do it right, then a conviction is going to enter on your record. You don't want that. So now after I've kind of modified my speech, I have a question. I have a question. Let's do it. I'm here to, and I'm not giving legal advice. I can't do that. I'm completely prohibited from doing that, but I'm here to help you and guide you. And listen. And listen to you. So what does your typical day look like as a judge? So um, being at the Aurora Branch Court and overseeing traffic and misdemeanors, my call starts at 9 o'clock. And that's the in-person court call. So from 9 to 10.30, it's in person. And during that time frame, I try to help as much as possible because I remember being in traffic court as a 16 year old girl and thinking to myself, I'll be here till noon. I mean, it eats up your whole day. So, you know, you have the city prosecutors that are prosecuting for the city of Aurora, North Aurora, Montgomery, and then you have your state, which is, you know, your King County prosecutors. Right. And so anything that I can do to try to move the call. So I'll, you know, after my opening remarks, I'll sit down call people and say, is there anyone who wants to hire an attorney to represent them? If you do come up to the front row, and we get them dates and we kind of let them move on their way. Is there anybody who wants to talk to the secretary of state about resolving their driver's license? People Come up, and get them out. So from nine to 1030, that's what we're doing. Get, you know, getting continuances if they want to speak to an attorney or talk to the secretary of state, but then also taking pleas. Anybody who wants to plead guilty. Um, I go through every plea with, with the individual and then from 10.30 to 11.30, that's when we do the Zoom court call. Mm-hmm. So by 10.30, the courtroom's completely cleared out, then we jump on Zoom, which I truly appreciate. I mean, I, we should have done that a long time ago, but obviously COVID really opened our eyes to that need because have you ever thought about the people that were, didn't have transportation or had childcare issues and all these things now we can accommodate them, right? Mm-hmm. Some people don't even take off of work. They're calling in from their job sites, which I'm fine with. I don't, I know a lot of people are like, oh, how, how can you let them, you know, do th- they're they're not going to miss a day of work. That's how I'm going to let them do that. Yeah, you know because they're working working is more important than you know sitting in a courtroom. But they're zooming in, right? They're not missing court. So over Zoom, we also do pleas. Sometimes um, they'll plea out on Zoom, getting continuances, and then the afternoons are reserved for trials. And so um, I've conducted at least fifteen bench trials really enjoy it. The first time I, I did my trial, uh, I almost objected. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because you're, you're so used to it. You hear something, you're like, you know, you're, you're used to being Object. in that. Right. And I'm like, yeah, Like I, I said, but, and people looked at me and I'm like, I'm sorry, go on.
0: <laughs>
1: because it's, it's in your nature. You yeah. hear something and you, but now it's, you know, you're every time that I have a, a person who is representing themselves for my community, I I always tell them, I'm proud of you for taking this step because most people wouldn't have the courage to do it and they're doing it and they're doing- you see that a lot? Yes. Mm. And I, I appreciate it because they're doing a good job. You know, I tell them, I can't help you. I can't give you the arguments to make. I can't tell you how to lay foundation, but I can give you the procedure. And they hear me, you know, here's when you make your arguments. Here's when you cross their witnesses, you know, and they understand the process and they do good, they do good work. They ask good questions. And, you know, I, there have been a few people that I'm like, you should really consider law schools (laughs) are young kids, but they're really taking the initiative and the effort to put forward a good case. Yeah. And that's exciting, right? You Mm -hmm. see people that are, you know, wanting to exercise their
0: right to defend themselves and they're doing good at it. You know, Mm. so what else in terms of your, your campaign and your strategy going forward that you want people to know? Well, I want them to know that I'm just, you know, people are
1: like, oh, you're a judge. I'm just Bianca. You know, those are titles that I hold. Yes. I'm a judge. Yes. I used to be a prosecutor. Yes. I used to be a victim advocate, but at the end of the day, I'm a person that you can relate to that you can come to, you know, I I've, in being in my community a little bit more since my appointment, I've encountered so many girls that remind me of me. You know, and I tell them, it was somebody, I went to, to do vision boards with some of these girls and one of them put first generation college grad. And I looked at her and I said, when this time comes, come see me because I want to talk you through this. Because I remember when I saw that, how hard it was for me and how scary it was for me, not knowing what to do and I want to be there to help her, right? And so I'm not just, oh, I'm I'm a judge, I sit up here. No, I'm still just Bianca. And I'm so grateful that this platform has allowed me to catapult myself even more into this community. It's given me opportunities to be there when girls are doing their vision boards and to chat with them. Mm -hmm. You know, that's I'm inspired by them because they're doing great things with a situation that they're still first generation and they don't have people to show them the ropes, mm-hmm. but they're doing it and they're, they have the courage to do it. And so that's, that's my biggest thing is that I'm just me. I'm just Bianca, the same person that's been in this community since day one. And I, nothing's going to change. Win or lose this election. This is my home. This is where I'm raising my son. This is where me and my husband have been for the last, you know, we bought our house in Aurora almost 12 years ago. And, we're not going anywhere. Do I have to be professional and do I have to, you know, maintain civility and in, in the courtroom and make sure it's running efficiently and effectively? Absolutely. But outside of that,
0: I'm still the same person, mm-hmm. and that title didn't change me. It will never change me. And then, but it adds the ability for you to become a coach, mentor, yes. sponsor for girls just like you yes and men and boys right like right we're inclusive completely
1: (laughs) completely those you know you get a lot of i I say inspiration but also strength you know like when i was doing those vision boards and i see these girls and i'm just like this was me one day Mm -hmm. and i didn't even have this i didn't have somebody telling me Tell me what your goals are. Tell me what you, how you, how are you going to achieve those goals? And I see them. And I'm just like, so that inspired me to say, I reached out to the group and I'm like, Hey, you know, a lot of the girls talked about wanting to see the court process. Come, come watch the court process with me. I invite you to come into my courtroom. You can see the morning court calls, stay for the the trials. We'll, you know, talk about it over lunch and, you know, things like that. Being in, invited to environments like that, you know, like me being a victim advocate and getting that opportunity showed me what I really wanted to do. And this opportunity for them, maybe they were, they're like, maybe I want to be a lawyer. Maybe I want to do this now. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it takes that one person to reroute your entire life. And it's just one person. All it takes is one one person, person, one person to believe in you. Mm -hmm. And I believe in these, these, people that I'm coming across. I mean, I, I believe in them. I feel that they're going to be something great. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a girl that I came across and (laughs) she reminds me of me because she's silly. And I, I'm silly sometimes, you know, if you ask my family, I like to, you know, bust out and dance in the middle of, you know, family dinner night and um, you know, make funny voices and stuff like that. And she's like that, you know, she'll just sit there and she'll start, talking in a British accent. And I told her, I said, you have a lot of energy and you're funny. Consider going into theater, you know? And she's like, I could never do that. Why? Why could you never do that? I don't know. I don't know. It's not a reason go do it. (laughs) You know? And I thought to myself, maybe I could take her to a play so she can see. Cause I asked her, have you ever been to a play? No." But then I thought, okay, Bianca, calm down. There's all these of
0: things. Well, this is the other side that I think is unlocked. Is then you are able to have resources. Right. It's like the 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 resources component is the enabling component. Right. And so now you have more exposure, mm-hmm. more ability, more money, probably to spending money to be able to provide experiences that open eyes, open right. hearts, open minds. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's
1: it's fulfilling and very very inspiring. Very inspiring. What's next for you? You know what I really want to do if I do win this election? Mm. Give back to the people that supported me when I was coming up. You know, I talk. me and my husband talk a lot. What if we won the lottery? What would you do with that money? And here was my, here's always my response. I would donate to Wavansi and we would start a scholarship. Same at NIU Law and at Aurora University. Because those were the institution's that helped me and my husband get to where we're at right now. And to give back to students that are struggling or don't have the finances to finish their education, that to me is giving back and helping, dandole la mano to the people that need it. Like I needed it. That's my number one. You know, I want to start these scholarships and I, you know, I don't know if I can put it ethically, I don't know what I can do, what I can't do, but you know, do I put it in my name? Would that be proper? I put it in my son's name, something. But I want those scholarships out there, and I want to help. People are like, oh, you're going to be making all this money. It's not about the money to me. You know what? pre this appointment. I was happy. And I didn't have all the money in the world, but I had the things that I needed. Mm-hmm. And mostly what I needed was my, just my family, my dad and my sister and my brother, and obviously my husband and my son. That's what I need in my life. Money's nice. Yeah, it's nice, but it doesn't make me. It'll never make me
0: Bianca. this was an informative, compelling telling interview. Thank you for sharing your time. Is there anything else that you want to share with those who are listening or watching? Well,
1: thank you for even giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it really. and just that I am grateful, I really am grateful and blessed for this appointment because I feel like now it's giving me an opportunity to get my get to know my community even more, to get them to know me and the type of person that I've been, that I've been kind of working behind the scenes for them for the last 15 years, and that those experiences are going to make me a judge that they can be proud of. You know, those values that I've carried with me for the last 15 years of being hardworking, of, of being humble, of understanding that I don't know everything, but I'm willing to learn those things and that I'm here to listen. And at the end of the day, they have to know that the judiciary is there for them. I'm not there for the prosecution. I'm not there for the defense. I'm there for my community to make sure that when they're there and they're standing there, that they get their day in court, whether that's a person who's accused of a crime, a victim of a crime, a witness to a crime, that's who I'm there for my community and that's who I'm here to serve that's what a judge does and with those values I'm telling you that I'm I'm going to be and will always be true to those values which will make me a judge that my county can be proud of
0: proud of you <laughs> proud of you well oh, thank, thank you thank you, thank thank you, you so much, much. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out tuesdayswithandrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web and stay hella hopeful in your heart.